morning, Woven Covenant Church and friends. It's uh, my pleasure to serve as the lead pastor of this congregation. My name is Wayne Park, and um, every day I count it a privilege to serve and to um, just be pastor to this congregation. So I'm glad to see all of you and want to welcome all of you. Forgive my appearance, I usually don't dress this far down, I consider us a pretty laid-back church, but today is camp, and I'm going to be driving with four kids in my car, and uh, Charlie is already there, and Autumn is headed up as well, so we'll, we'll, I'll race you guys there, see who gets there first. And um, so uh, we're going to be at camp, um, me and these kids, and, and uh uh, Donnie Radley is going to be with the kids as well as a counselor. I'm going to be playing in the band. I'm going to be there from today until Saturday. So I'm just going to dress the part. Um, you, I cut my hair real short. I'm planning to dye it and go crazy. I mean, this is camp. We do this for the kids. We're going to have a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, that's what camp's all about. And the kids, they love it. They come back with their lives changed. I got to see my own son come forward um, during a devotion time and make a choice to accept Jesus and to follow Christ. I don't know if he's fully understood what that means yet, but that's why he goes back to camp every year. <laughs> so, um, good times. As well, uh, we also have Angel and Ashley away at uh, Triennial, and I've been getting some of the updates, and they are having a blast. I can't tell you enough. Uh, Triennial means every three years, so woman, you want to go again in three years? Uh, they're just having so much fun, and I'm super, super happy that they're getting replenished, and their thirst is getting quenched, and um, so they'll be coming back. And next Sunday, when we have our Women's Sunday, you'll get to hear more about some of the, the great blessings that they had. So, here we are, um, midsummer, almost, uh, you know, past halfway, and we've been talking for the last several weeks through the Old Testament book of Isaiah. In particular, we've been talking through something called the Servant Songs. The Servant Songs are passages, four passages in Isaiah that talk about a servant who will come, who will suffer, who will give his life. Just like we sang that song, I give myself away. The suffering servant would give himself away, thereby teaching us the model and the example of self-sacrifice, of self-giving. Now, you don't all have to give yourself unto death necessarily, but we all do need to give ourselves. We give ourselves. Now, uh, Christians over the course of history have been called to give themselves literally, their lives away, but all of us can do that today by simple choices of not living to our own ego or for our own pleasures or for our own self-centeredness. I wake up in the morning and I remind myself, am I living this day for my own selfish means or am am I desires or can I live for others? Can I live for my church? Can I live for my spouse? Can I live for my friends, my roommate, so on and so forth? So the suffering servant culminated, or the servant songs culminated last Sunday with the fourth servant song. Here's the thing. We're still in the series, which means we're not done yet. There's a fifth passage that some scholars believe is also a servant song. And that is Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 4. If we could read that together, that would be great. So let's pull it up on the screen. All together now, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me 
to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations and they will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. And so you see, we cannot pass up this series. We cannot conclude this series without talking about this famous, famous passage. And so Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. We're going to conclude today, conclude this series. And next week, again, Women's Sunday, Camp Sunday, we've got a couple of things. And then come fall, we're going to have a really dynamic series about faith and work and about what it means to work, what, what spirituality looks like from Monday to Friday. And uh, we're going to correlate that with a new um, woven group series, a woven group study as well. I think it's going to be very, very, very helpful for all of you working professionals. But we conclude today with this passage, Isaiah 61. Now, if you look in your notes, I have like a little diagram. It's a little different from our regular three headings. And in this diagram, uh, a couple of rectangles. And if you look in your notes, you'll see that. What I'm going to do today is a brief grammatical study of Isaiah 61. Grammatical study, immediately you want to check out. But hang with me because this is going to help us to understand and I think it will be very interesting and helpful. So the grammatical study of Isaiah 61, in every sentence you have two things. You have a subject and you have an object. And so the subject, not just of this sentence but of this entire first four passages, the subject is somebody who calls himself Me. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Now, properly speaking, you know, the subject is the Spirit of the Lord God, but here for this entire section, me, whoever this me is, is a subject. And this word me is the one reason why Isaiah is very difficult to read. There are different ideas about who wrote Isaiah, and for that matter, you have Isaiah uh, at different sections, uh, different characters that come up. You have the suffering servant. Here you have some anointed person, some anointed character. Whoever this me is, if we can bring up, there you go. This me, and the different scholars will debate and debate and debate about it. One thing we can say is Jesus in Luke chapter 4 would lay claim to this me identity. If you look in Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus in church or actually synagogue, kind of like we are. And somebody would pass the scroll of Isaiah to him. And Jesus would start reading these very words. In fact, interestingly enough, he would read everything up to the favorable year of the Lord. And he'll stop just short of the day of vengeance of our God. You can see he's being a sensitive interpreter, a sensitive reader. And he reads these words. And then he sits down and then he says, Today these words are fulfilled in your hearing. 
today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they're all like, what is he saying? He's talking about himself. He's equating himself with the me of Isaiah 61. So the thing is, when we read Isaiah, and throughout the, uh, throughout the New Testament, Isaiah will be quoted again and again. There's a famous story where there's an Ethiopian man. He's walking away. He's actually in a chariot, and he's going home southbound. He's leaving Jerusalem after a wonderful time in the holy city, and he's reading Isaiah, but he has no idea what he's reading. Friends, maybe you're like that. You've listened, you've read this book, you don't get it. And as he's reading these words, who is this me? What are they talking about? What is this suffering? What does this mean? Philip, Philip the evangelist, crosses paths with him, and he hears him, and he says, oh, sir, do you know what you're reading? Do you understand what you're reading? And what was the Ethiopian eunuch's response? How can I unless someone explains to me? And so it's my privilege to explain the meaning of Isaiah to you here, you fellow travelers, journeymen and journeywomen on the road of life, looking for meaning, looking for purpose. Why is this happening in my life? What does this mean? Why do I go to work Monday to Friday in this meaningless job or so you think it's meaningless? Why do I live my life? And you're on this journey asking the same question, I don't understand unless someone interprets for me. And Philip says, well, I was waiting for you to ask that question. And one by one begins to unpack and explain what Isaiah means. Explain each of the prophecies. Friends, I'm here to tell you that no one else in history, and I've studied the different historical figures, no one else in history fulfills the words of Isaiah more than Jesus. When it comes to a man being crucified among wicked people and being buried in a rich man's tomb, when it comes to somebody who would through himself suffer and give himself away, this servant, nobody else fulfills these words more than Jesus. That's why the Jews today, um, the Orthodox Jews, they still await this, the coming Messiah. They won't accept Jesus, but since Jesus or before, there was nobody else that fit the bill. Friends, for our means and purposes as Christians, what we believe is that the me of this passage is no one else but Jesus himself. And as I've explained it week in and week out for the last month or so, hopefully you are convinced that no one else fulfills these words of prophecy in Isaiah more than Jesus. He is the subject of this passage. This entire passage speaks of Jesus, and I would say the subject of the entire Bible is Jesus. Sally Lloyd-Jones writes a, the children's, uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, if I got that right. It's the Bible that we give to some of our children here when they, when they get promoted. And when you read that, um, it, she says, every story whispers his name. The entire Bible whispers the name of Jesus. He is the subject. He is the subject. And so the fill in the blank in that first square is quite simply Jesus then who is the object? Who is Jesus acting upon in a grammatical construction, a sentence, a subject acts upon an object? So who is the subject acting upon? If you could pull that up, the object is, in this passage, the afflicted, the brokenhearted, captives, 
prisoners and all who mourn in Zion. Those words, as they appear here, uh, are uh, they're passive tense words. They're passive tense words. And what that means is there are individuals who are receiving these, uh, uh, who are, well, let me, let me translate it this way. These are the ones who are being put in prison. These are the ones who are being captive or being held captive. These are the ones who are being afflicted. These are the ones who are being brokenhearted. And that phrase broken heart, that word broken hearted is two words in the Hebrew and it speaks of somebody who is being shattered. Shavar in the, in the Hebrew, let me get that right. Shavar, correct. Shavar, I mean, it sounds like shattering. Someone who's wrecked of heart. Someone who is wrecked of heart. Someone who is utterly destroyed. Someone who when they walk in the room, everybody goes, starts whispering and says, well, she, she's got damaged goods. That guy's really messed up. The ones who are completely shattered of heart, the ones who say, why is this happening to me? The ones who are in a position in their life where they say, I can't believe that I'm on the receiving end of this. The passive tense verb or, or uh, the, passive, the passive tense words. The ones who are being wounded and hurt. These are the objects. I don't know if any of you, if not today, I'm sure at some season in your life, you have been on the receiving end of life. You have been passive tense on the receiving end of shattering, of destroying of life and of heart. And so what does a subject do to you? What does a subject do to the object here? Now you have a subject, like a dog, and then you have an object, like a cat. So what's the verb in between? Dog chases cat. Dog is chased by cat. What's the verb? Let's bring that up. The verbs here lifted right out of Scripture. Now you don't have to write all of this down, but if something speaks to you, just put it in that rectangle. The verbs that the subject does to the object are brings good news. Binds up. Now, binds up means ties up. That's a sense of caring, of healing, comforting, proclaiming, telling you, proclaiming to you liberty, freedom, the favorable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God. I believe that words can heal. I've been on the receiving end of words that heal. Not not too long ago, I was with one of my church planting coaches, Dave Olson, when I was in Phoenix, and I was pouring out my heart to him, some of the things that had been weighing me down. And I could tell he was a little frustrated after listening to me complain, complain. And he said, Wayne, Wayne, you're a gifted guy. You're good. You're good at this. You're okay. He didn't tell me anything that was convincing, but for some reason, it helped so much. Words that heal. What does the subject of this passage, Jesus, the me, say to the object, but proclaim to you, you're good, you're okay, you're loved, you're special. I am showing favor, uh, you are favored of mine. You are favored by me. That's what he speaks to you. There's a saying that we have here in Woven that I've said before. You know what a friend is? 
A friend is somebody who takes the time to learn the song of your life. This is why I love my church. Because as we grow deeper, we're only two years in, we're a new church, but as we grow deeper, I am beginning to really learn the song of some of your lives. And you're learning the song of mine and each other's lives. But a friend is somebody who learned, takes the time to learn the song of your life and sings it back to you when you've forgotten. And sings it back to you when you've forgotten. And every now and then, when we've totally forgotten who we are and we're messed up and we've gotten to ourselves to a messed up place, we begin to hear Jesus sing the songs of our youth. Do you remember that song you sang when you were in camp? God's not dead, he's surely alive. Do you remember when you were dancing and you heard those? And he begins to sing the songs of your youth or of your past. He sings the songs that reminds you, that reminds you. Our little children will experience wonderful things this week and then they're going to come back to life. And life will be tough. And they'll grow up and they'll cry and they'll be adults. And then they'll remember the songs of their youth that they sang in camp. Their hearts will be warmed again. They'll remember. Jesus sings the song. He proclaims liberty. He proclaims freedom. And he gives. He gives. I like there's three parallels here. Listen to this. He gives a garland instead of ashes. Who would, who would give you ashes anyway? I have ashes in my charcoal grill. Why would, I give, give, why would you give somebody ashes? Instead, he gives you a garland. It's a head crown of flowers. He gives you a garland. He gives you the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. And so these are the things that he gives us. These are the ways he acts upon us. We, the objects, and these are the verbs. But something happens. Something happens when you are in a rut or in a place where you are low, you're calling yourself terrible things, and Jesus acts upon you, a transformation occurs, and your name changes. And you're transformed from all of these horrible, terrible things to oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And in the Hebrew, that word um, at the end of verse 3, so they will be called, that word kara means to be cried out. So it's like if you walk into church and everybody goes, Norm, or Donnie, or Paul, or right? And they all cry out your name. Imagine if you walked into church and everybody said, Loser, or Weenie, or that would be horrible. But instead, I'm sorry if that's improper. Instead, you walk into church and you are cried out, oak of righteousness. You walk into the building and you are called out, the planting of the Lord. You walk into church and you are called out, there goes the favored one, the loved disciple, the precious, the garland of, 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 the, of the Lord's favor. You walk in and you are renamed is what happens. You are renamed, you are re-cried out. Literally, that word is cried out, but it talks about a renaming taking place. 
One of my favorite books of the Old Testament, because I studied it very carefully when I was in school, and to this day, I love that book, is, is the book of Ruth. And if you've ever read this book, and it's a book about women, you have a character named Naomi, properly pronounced Naomi. Not ma means pleasant, to be pleasant. And when you, uh, when you suffix it with e, it becomes personal, my pleasantness. So here's somebody, her whole life, whose name was my pleasantness, God's pleasantness. And she lives her life, but she gets in a place where everything goes wrong. People are dying around her. Food is running out. She loses everything. And when she comes back and people say, there's Naomi, she walks in and they say, there's Naomi, Naomi. And she says, stop calling me Naomi. I'm nobody's pleasantness and I sure ain't your pleasantness. You can sense the bitterness because El Shaddai has treated me this way. I'm not your pleasantness anymore. Call me instead Marah, which means bitter. And she renames herself Marah. But here's the thing. Immediately after she calls herself Marah, immediately after, without skipping a beat, the narrator of the story calls her what? Naomi. But my pleasantness returned home. And never again does that word Marah appear in the book of Ruth. Never again. You see, the Savior not only renames you, but insists on calling you that name when you have forgotten. Naomi will never be called Marah again. She is insistingly called Naomi, my pleasantness, by the narrator of the story of her life. Friends, the narrator of your life, of the story of your life, will insist on calling you a better name, a new name. He will cry it out every Sunday when you walk into church. Friends, I believe, I mean, I know why I come to church. It's because I, I, this, is, this is what I do for a living. But you come back to church every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday. Why? Because when you walk through the doors, you feel like you belong. Because you remember your name in this place. So a transformation takes place. You are no longer Marah or the shattered or the wrecked of heart. You are now the oak of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. A transformation occurs when you are the recipient, when you are acted upon by the Savior. Friends, nobody can change their own name. Sometimes I kind of wish I could change my own name. Like, I would change it, I don't know what I would change it to, something really cool, but not like Wayne or something, but, but the thing is, you can't change your own name. You get called something, especially if it's a nickname. Like, I, I read this, this was really interesting. You know Bono, in the band U2, he never named himself Bono. That was a, that was a, that was a name when he was in middle school that they used to make fun of him, and he didn't like it. But it turned out to be like the coolest name ever. And that's the thing. You can't name yourself a cool name. A name comes as a gift. It comes as a gift. And in the same way, until you are acted upon by the Savior, until you are acted upon by the suffering servant, your name cannot change. Have you been acted upon? Have you been acted upon by the Savior? Have you waited in the stillness 
and he has come upon you and he has changed your life and your name. If you have not, I'm going to invite you at the end of today's talk to invite him to come act upon your life. But there's one last thing. Not only does he transform your name, but there's one last thing, if you can pull that up. He does it so that, so that, so that you go forth in mission to rebuild the ancient ruins, so that you go forth to raise up the former devastations, so that you go forth to repair the ruined cities and the desolations of many generations. I hear of men in particular, for some reason men come to my mind, whose lives were destroyed. And they found Christ and they went back to their communities as beacons of hope. They went back to the desolations. They went back to the former devastations. Friends, to become a Christian does not just mean to get religious or to get hot. It means to also repair the former devastations. It means healing means going back and fixing my family, fixing my neighborhood, fixing my community, fixing my schools, fixing my wherever I find myself. So in conclusion, I ask you, being the acted upon ones, those who have been acted upon, who are no longer the wrecked of heart, the shattered of heart, now you are the oaks of righteousness, the transformed ones. My question now is how are you repairing the ancient ruins, raising up the former devastations, and rebuilding ruined cities and the desolations of many generations? Think of your own families and think of your own lives. Family, broken families and wounded families destroyed but what happens is when you when you become a christian it reverses the generational trend from your generation on you repair you rebuild the ruins your former generations no matter how bad things were from your generation on a new thing will happen a new thing will happen i pray that for all of our woven families here also those on vacation that for all of us, a new thing will happen here and that we will rebuild what was devastated in the former generations and what was lost in those desolations of many generations past. Let's pray. Have you been acted upon by the Savior? Have you been acted upon in some way where you know that a transformation of your name, identity, has taken place? I would go so far as to say, unless we experience that change of identity and who we are, perhaps we have not been acted upon yet. Or at least we haven't realized just how profoundly Jesus has acted upon our lives. And if you are yearning for someone to take the initiative, for someone to say, you're my favorite, favorite. I like you. 
I'm on your side. I know what you're going through. Then you have simply but to ask. And so take this moment to pray and to just talk in your heart or however, but to talk to God, to talk to Jesus, and to invite him to act upon your heart. Today, if you are ready to make a change and to receive a new name or to commit yourself to following Jesus, I want to tell you that it is a serious decision. But I want to invite you, if you are ready to make that prayer and that commitment to turn your life around, I invite you to become a regular part of this church to give your life to Jesus as best you can, to turn your life, your behavior, your language, your habits, to turn it around, and to commit to a new way of life that's going to be awesome and beautiful. And if you're ready for this, then please pray after me. Jesus, please help me. I am stuck. I am alone. And I want to change my life. But I can't. Please come into my heart. Please give me a new name. And please change me one day at a time from this day forward. I commit to following you, to learning about you, to growing in you through this church or some body of believers. And I give my life to you and to your lordship. I surrender. Come now, transform me, and give me my new name. I welcome you in. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.